This message comes from NPR sponsor Stripe. Tap to pay on iPhone, and Stripe can help you grow your business's revenue and reach through accepting more in-person, contactless payments right from an iPhone. To learn how, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hey, it's Manoush, and I've got a really quick question for you. Do you listen to the show because you like learning new things, understanding really complicated ideas, or hearing from big brains? Or maybe you've got other reasons. Well, we really want to know what you like, don't like, and how we can serve you better, dear listener. So please help us out by taking a brief but important survey at npr.org slash tedsurvey. That's npr.org slash tedsurvey. It means a lot. So thank you. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. Our job now is to dream big. Delivered at TED conferences. To bring about the future we want to see. Around the world. To understand who we are. From those talks, we bring you speakers and ideas that will surprise you. You just don't know what you're going to find. Challenge you. We truly have to ask ourselves, like, why is it noteworthy? And even change you. I literally feel like I'm a different person. Yes. (laughs) Do you feel that way? Ideas worth spreading. From TED and NPR. I'm Anoush Zamarodi. And on the show today, Paradise Lost and Found. And for Richard and Zeta Gore, Paradise is a real place. They found it, and they moved there in 2018. We enjoyed the, the small town, lots of trees, and, you know, fresh air up above the valley. We loved the house we had just picked out, we remodeled a few things on it, and it had just become the house of our dreams. Paradise is Paradise, California, a town that at the time had about 26,000 people surrounded by dense, forest-covered canyon in the Sierra Nevada foothills. And with a name like Paradise... There's a lot of lot of jokes about it. Uh, you're now ascending into paradise, and when we go to our sons, we tell them we're now descending out of paradise to come down to the valley. But then, in November 2018, just seven months after the Gores moved into town, they got a phone call. We'll never forget. To this day, I remember looking out the window of our bedroom and noticing that it looked kind of overcast. And uh, I said, that's strange. I don't recall it you know, being any clouds, but I didn't pay any attention. And then at about 7.45, our son called and, and said, did you know your town is on fire? Just west, a faulty electrical line had started a small fire. That, combined with the bone-dry brush from California's ongoing drought, coaxed that small fire into a massive blaze that quickly descended on paradise. But, of course, the Gores didn't know any of this at the time. We saw the sky. We saw the ashes. We were told that we should leave. Um, But we didn't think it was urgent because we didn't see any flames at that time. (laughs) And we said, okay, we need to evacuate, but, uh, but we'll be coming back. Our home will be fine. Zeta and Richard packed up a few clothes and drove off. But they quickly hit gridlock and things got serious. Yeah, then the wind started kicking up. That's when ashes are flying around and embers, hard to breathe, explosions are happening all every minute or two. And then people were saying, there's a house on fire just 
up the road and we're then hitting us, wow, this is gonna be bad. In a matter of a few hours, the entire town was inundated and it was absolutely that feeling in our guts. We absolutely thought we were gonna die and we're both praying and I said, look, we're not gonna die sitting in our car in the road. They pulled over and hiked down into a canyon. They ended up walking over a dozen miles to another town where their son could finally come and pick them up. Richard and Zeta were exhausted, but fine. Their house, however, was not. Nothing, no feeling compares to the feeling about a week later when the sheriff escorted us up there to our property and we pulled up and got out of the cars and stood there at our burned out remains. Couldn't hold back the tears. Yeah, that was very emotional. Paradise. The word evokes lush, abundant beauty, a refuge from harm. But is it futile to search for anything idyllic when we live on a warming planet that feels less at peace than ever? Today on the show, Paradise Lost and Found. Ideas about looking for utopia and coming to terms with reality. So, back to Paradise, California. 18,000 structures were destroyed in 2018. 85 people died. At the time, it was the deadliest fire in modern U.S. history. That is, until the most recent fires in Maui. This risk is increasing, and if we don't get our act together, we're going to have more paradises. We're going to have more Santa Rosas. We're going to have more Lahainas. We're going to have more Marshall fires like the one they had in Colorado. This is George Whitesides. He's the founder of a new organization that's working to help local governments in California manage fires better and stop megafires like the one in Paradise from happening in the first place. Eight of the 10 largest megafires in California history have happened over the last five or six years. Partly that's due to global warming, but it's also due to how we've been managing the forests. And I think that's kind of a crucial piece that oversuppression over the course of many decades has created conditions akin to almost a bomb in our forests. And we really need to defuse that bomb by managing our forests and our wildlands in fundamentally different ways. Many people feel overwhelmed by the situation. I know I did. George Whitesides continues from the TED stage. So two years ago, I closed a chapter of my life in aerospace, and I started a new journey to see if I could understand the wildfire crisis better and what could be done about it. I started working with leaders from firefighting, entrepreneurship, science, tribal communities, and together we co-founded an organization called Megafire Action, whose sole purpose is to solve the megafire crisis. The path forward has three solutions. The first is fire-adapted communities. The second is resilient landscapes. And the third is innovative fire management. I mean, we have seen these really dramatic scenes of wildfire just ravaging towns. But you say that the first steps people need to take to protect their homes, it's actually pretty straightforward. Yeah, sure. In fact, it could be as simple as individual homeowners 
doing the work that is required to make their home more resilient to wildfire. So like on the cheaper side, you know, everyone can clear out the five or 10 feet immediately around their home from brush and shrubs and plants, basically. That makes a big difference. Everyone can put metal screens in their eaves and vents around their home so that Mm. when a big fire comes through and embers start blowing, you know, at high speed, they don't blow through into your attic and burn your home down from the inside out. Other things are more expensive. Like it's really great if you can have a roof that is made of something that's fire resistant. Those make a huge difference. Arguably up to 50% Mm. of your risk is, you know, what those materials are. And we have a huge interest to having everybody in that community take these steps, particularly those around the perimeter, because if you can protect some of those uh, outer boundaries, then you have a way of reducing the, the risk that that fire uh, penetrates deeply into the city. The second solution is resilient landscapes. And if you take one lesson from this talk, it's this. In order to solve the megafire crisis, we need to bring our Western landscapes back into a healthy balance by reducing the overgrown brush and trees in the wildlands and the forest. Here, we're finally starting to take to heart the wisdom of the indigenous peoples of the Americas who knew that fire was a natural part of the landscape and who introduced low-intensity fire, good fire, on a regular basis at the right times. When this is done well, as around the communities of South Lake Tahoe, then it can actually divert a megafire as bad as the one that they experienced in 2021. I mean, there might be some indigenous people who hear you say that and think, yeah, yeah, no kidding that you need to be having prescribed burns, I think is what they call it, right? Like this is something that some populations have been doing for centuries. Yeah, thousands of years. And there are now you know, many places that are working on this stuff. And, you know, great example is the area immediately around South Lake Tahoe, you know, which spent on the order of over $100 million on forest treatments. Hmm. And that's a hopeful example of a situation with the Caldor fire where you had this terrible, huge mega fire bearing down on South Lake Tahoe. But those forest treatments were credited by some as sort of giving the firefighters enough pause bringing the fire intensity down enough, they were able to keep it from tearing through South Lake Tahoe. You know, where you don't do that work and actually as part of that same fire, some of those treatments weren't done and and actually there were communities that were lost in that fire, tragically. What we need is innovation and technology that can rapidly detect and assess fire and then quickly put it out when it gets bad. Here we need to look at the example of the quick reaction force of Southern California, which is really designed in some ways for these toughest days. The QRF uh, is a public-private partnership which now has three Chinook helicopters. These are the big ones with the two rotors on the top. And each of them can drop up to 3,000 gallons of water on a fire, day or night, and they can do it very precisely. They can also refill up to six times an hour so they can bring a lot of mass to the problem. Over the course of two years of demonstrations, the QRF has demonstrated that this model has great potential that in fact, if you can bring a lot of fire management resource to a fire very quickly, you can get on top of fires before they get big and unmanageable. We can build a world in which communities are resilient to wildfire and in which forests are brought back into a healthy balance. So let's get to work. Let's learn from fire. 
and let's build a resilient, sustainable future. We were, we were not going to go back to paradise at all. And it actually took us, uh, oh, I'd say almost about a year to decide. Again, Richard and Zeta Gore. We had a clean slate. We were starting from scratch. We could virtually move anywhere. But after scouting out towns in Utah, Arizona, and Idaho, the Gores decided to go back to paradise and rebuild. The area has new building codes. The town also has a new early warning system. And they say it feels good to be home. I did not feel there was any high risk of fire anymore. Everything was so burned. And I actually was proud to go back and rebuild the city, you know, try and heal. We actually enjoy the geography better now because it's not so overgrown with uh, trees and underbrush. You know, a lot of that has been burned off. And the, there's more open sky. We can actually see our neighbors across the way now. Uh, it seems, at least to us, that there's a lot more community and camaraderie now since the fire that those that have stayed and are rebuilding have you know, really banded together and bonded. And uh, it's really much more of uh, our town feeling now than just a town before the fire. Many thanks to Richard and Zeta Gore of Paradise, California. And that was George Whitesides. He's the chairman of the public policy group Mega Fire Action and is running for Congress in California's 27th District. You can see his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, Paradise Lost and Found. You're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and we'll be right back. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Support for NPR and the following message come from State Farm. As a State Farm agent and agency owner, Lakeisha Gaines is passionate about empowering other small businesses. In the last several years, there are more business owners than we can count. Businesses are opening up quite frequently. And I think that shows the need, the dreams, and the desires of the community to have the independence and to have the financial freedom that's important to them. The reason why it's so important to me to be out there to share information and to educate the community is because I know that a dream doesn't always help you to be successful. You need the competency, you need the wisdom, you need the knowledge. That's where we come in as State Farm agents, our ability to be able to teach over 100 years of experience in this world to say, hey, we got you. You got this and we got this. Let's do it together. Talk to your local agent about small business insurance from State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort, journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more 
at viking.com. Hey, it's Manoush, and I've got a little present for you. We just wrapped up our special series, Body Electric. Over six episodes, we investigated how our technology is changing our bodies, our eyeballs, and our minds. We are increasingly being bombarded by sensory signals, whether it's what we're looking at on the internet, whether it's our social media, whether it's simply the number of times we check email. And throughout the series, over 20,000 listeners took part in our study with Columbia University researchers to try and make our sedentary, screen-filled lives a little healthier. It has really sparked a moment of fun exploration for me in how I engage with my work and my body. On the final episode, we got the data and some surprises. We heard from so many people just how life-changing this was for them. Give yourself or someone you love the gift of understanding how to live a little better in our always-on world. Share and listen to all six episodes in your TED Radio Hour feed right here, right now. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Manoush Zamarodi. Today on the show paradise lost and found. Ideas about our search for utopia. You know, I've been lucky enough to go to many of the idyls that we might think of as paradise, uh, from the Seychelles to Tahiti to Bali. This is writer Pico Iyer. And I remember when I was in my 20s, I flew through the day and through the night, and I arrived in Bali, and I woke up and... uh, There was this golden morning all around me, and there were these smiling, kind people bringing me fresh fruit and and tea to uh, enjoy on the terrace of my bungalow. Down this palmy little lane was a golden beach of my dreams. And I thought, this really is paradise. But then... Night fell, I heard the weird jangly sound of the gamelan orchestras in the distance. Wild dogs were barking. And apart from anything, I thought, even if this is paradise for me, it's probably not for the locals. They're working so hard to make me and and, um, other visitors comfortable. And then it also made me think, because I was living in New York City, well, if the wonderful Balinese people around me were to arrive in Manhattan tomorrow, they'd probably think that's paradise, <laughs> which it wasn't for me working in Midtown on 25th floor office. Um, and so it was a nice way at an early stage in my life of realizing how much paradise is, is a projection and often an illusion. And then thinking about what lay on the other side of them and and not in the realm of fantasy, but very much in the heart of reality. Pico is a novelist, essayist, and he's best known for writing about his travels. He thought often about this idea that paradise is just a fantasy. But it wasn't until he was stuck at home during the pandemic that he decided to explore it further. I think like pretty much everybody across the globe, uh, I was in this state of uncertainty um, and close to grief, feeling death breathing around the corner and wondering how I could find hope and light and inspiration even in the middle of this difficulty. And I thought if I can go to places of conflict and difficulty and find something that sustains me even there, maybe 
that will give me a hope that can take me even through a global pandemic and all the other challenges life is sure to throw up. Yeah, you write, after years of travel, I'd begun to wonder what kind of paradise can ever be found in a world of unceasing conflict and whether the very search for it might not simply aggravate our differences. We are talking about a very sort of philosophical approach that you took, which led you all around the world. Exactly. Um, From Iran to North Korea and war-torn Kashmir to war-torn Sri Lanka and Varanasi and, as you say, all the places that are not the ones that instantly come to mind. Pico Iyer continues from his book, The Half-Known Life. The natural place to embark upon such an inquiry seemed to be the culture that had given us both our word for paradise and some of our most soulful images of it. The old Iranian term, paradaja, had been brought into Greek by Xenophon when he'd served as a mercenary in Persia. And for centuries, Persians, as most residents of Iran were then known, had cultivated detailed and ravishing visions of paradise in their walled gardens as emblems of enticements towards the higher garden that awaits the fortunate. But what gave particular power to the world's largest theocracy right now was that so many competing visions of paradise seemed to be crisscrossing every hour here with furious intensity. So you begin your search for paradise in Iran where you say there are these competing visions of what that even is. What are those visions? Exactly. The ruling clerics in Iran currently have a very precise notion of paradise. They believe that paradise belongs only to the faithful and most of all to those martyrs who give their lives to Islam. And of course, so many of the Iranian citizens have a very different notion of paradise. I think much more worldly one taking place behind closed doors of maybe sex and drugs and, and rock and roll and um, all the delights of, um, of the earth. And meanwhile, I think both the rulers and the regular citizens are quoting the great Sufi poets like Rumi and Hafiz who remind us that paradise exists only within. So Iran seemed like the perfect convergence of many different ways of thinking about paradise and maybe a way of reminding me that sometimes it's notions of paradise that get in the way of our finding it. Let's talk about the young man who you ended up spending time yes, with. Yes, yes. He he had his own notion of paradise, and it's it was a really surprising example. Can you share it? Yes. I mean, my very first night in Iran, in the great holy city of Mashhad, I had spent a wonderful day seeing the official sites with my guide and my uh, driver. But I wanted to see the, the place unchaperoned. To do so, Pico politely sent his guide and driver to dinner, saying he was going to turn in early. But instead... I slipped down to the taxi desk in the hotel of my lobby, and I asked them if they could find somebody to take me into the heart of town. And very quickly, a young man, very friendly, in his late 20s, speaking pretty good English, led me off into his battered compact. You come for the festival? he asked. Festival? 
This week, the driver explained, the anniversary of Imam Reza. Five million people had gathered from every corner of the Shia world, he said, from Yemen and Pakistan and Beirut and Iraq, from all the provinces of Iran, to mark the auspicious occasion. As we pushed through a tiny entrance behind a wall of bodies, all we could make out was celebration. This driver took Pico through busy streets to a mosque in the heart of Mashhad, which is actually the largest mosque in the world, with seven huge marble courtyards, and at the center, a shrine to Imam Reza, the saint that was being celebrated. The crowds here were so intense that little boys were being passed from shoulder to shoulder so they could arrive at the front and kiss the golden grill behind which lay the saint. A man wailed and a great sound rose up around us. More than 30 million pieces of silver on the walls and chandeliers turned us all into a shiver of reflections. I was humbled as I moved among the sobbing bodies. Men were running their hands down their faces and weeping as at their mother's funeral. More people pressed in and the whole crowd seemed to sway and tremble as if we were truly part of a single massed body. I'd lost contact by now with my driver, but then I caught sight of him across the room. And I saw that there were tears in this young driver's eyes. His hand was on his heart, and he was literally moving backwards, walking backwards, so he would never present his back to the long dead saint. And I thought, my goodness, this is a perfect image of Islamic piety. But then when we were out of the shrine and walking back towards his car, he started telling me about his wife, who was a blonde Yorkshire woman waiting for him in England and expecting their first child. And then he told me that he had paid a human trafficker $2,500 to smuggle him into England in the back of a truck, breathing through a tube so he wouldn't be detected. And then he told me how the British government had very generously uh, given him a court-appointed lawyer and translator, and they had worked night and day for three years in order to win him asylum in Britain. Wow. So this taxi driver has this harrowing journey to start a new life, and yet he was back. Yes. In other words, he'd risked his life to flee Iran and to make a new life for himself in England. And yet, having done that, every single summer, he stole back into Iran Mm. to see the hometown and the mosque and, most of all, the mother that he loved so much. So having risked his life to flee Iran, he risked his life every single year to come back to Iran. Mm. And it made me think that as long as he'd been in Iran, everything outside Iran, such as Britain, seemed like the great paradise that he aspired to. But having made a, a lovely new family life for himself in England, suddenly he remembered all he was missing. A part of him and a part of paradise lay in the place that he'd run away from. And maybe the paradise that he was creating for himself was a collage. (laughs) I suppose it was also a reminder to me that for most of us, our full contentment and realization probably never comes from just one place. It comes from the many places that mean a lot to us and that we love. 
I mean, it's an archetypal story convention, right? From Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz to uh, what I think many of us experienced during the pandemic for those of us who were lucky enough to actually enjoy the stopping of the constant movement and just be home. And it it felt like, oh, I neglected my own little corner of paradise that actually was right here in my living room. Exactly. There's always this sense of a better world, a better life, a better self out there. And I think that's an exciting sense because that's what gives us the energy for aspiration and for not being complacent or or too comfortable with the world we have. But I think we have to remember that to some extent it's an illusion. And I think just as you suggested, I'm guessing quite a few people realized, wait a minute, there's beauty right down the street. And I think as much as anything, the thought of paradise is a way of reminding yourself how lucky you are, how little we want to take for granted. That encounter with his taxi driver taught Pico that different and competing notions of paradise can exist even within one person. He ends his journey with a trip to India where his parents are from, and a place he knows well. I think a lot of India can be a shock to the system. It's so loud, it's so colorful, it's so crowded. It's this psychedelic intensity that makes you feel that you've entered some other realm of consciousness. Pico writes that one feels this especially in Varanasi, which is one of the oldest cities in the world and also among the most sacred. Varanasi is India to the max as the holy center of Hinduism. And as you walk along the holy river, Ganges, that flows through Varanasi, night and day there are these great fires burning to the north and burning to the south that are reducing dead bodies to ash. And as you walk through the narrow alleyways of the old city, people are constantly surging past, carrying their loved ones on stretchers as dead bodies to be committed to the flames or the holy waters. And one of the things that's so striking is that, of course, it's a city of death, but it's also a city of joy. Mm. The people who are racing past you are not mourning. They're not in grief. They're so grateful that they can come to the holy place. And I think ensure moksha, liberation, for the the loved one who has just passed. So it's a confounding place that really overturns all your simple ideas about the world. You describe the river there being absolutely filthy, and yet people drinking from it as though it was wine. You talk about men and children covered in ash, um, people carrying corpses around with them, fire being everywhere. And there's, to me, it almost felt like there was this porousness to it, you know, that this was the river sticks, the, the road to the afterlife here on earth. Is that how you think people see it? Yes, that's perfect. And I can't speak for a devout Hindu who would probably put it differently, but I felt just as you. There aren't many places um, on the planet that have this kind of mythic intensity where you feel that one's walking along next to the river of life and on the far side of the river is whatever unknown um, Mm. awaits us all. And just as you said perfectly, the fact that the holy river 
according to um, the WHO, contains 3,000 times the amount of bacteria deemed safe for consumption mm. and that people are bathing in it and even drinking in it, for me it was a very tonic uh, and liberating idea that the holiest place doesn't have to be the purest place. That at some level, most of us can probably never find an immaculate place, a place that's absolutely pure because we're human beings. And, you know, I think one of the memorable moments that comes to mind as we talk about it is that there was this whole cacophony and even though I'm Indian, I was really freaked out by it. <laughs> and I suddenly heard two people call my name and I turned around and it were two um, Tibetan Buddhists I know from New York City. Huh. And my friend came up to me and he surveyed the scene of absolute chaos and intensity. And he said, isn't this glorious? This is the whole human pageant. This is life and death and everything in between. Basically, I think he was saying this is the only paradise uh, we can ever hope to find and, and to, to make our lives in. Mm. Um, the paradises that our minds create are never going to come to fruition in real life. But here is real life to the hilt. And this is the place where we have to live and where we have to find our comfort and delight and warmth. And maybe because he was a monk, he seemed to be doing it. He was just rejoicing mm. in the cacophony. I want to end by asking you about um, a, a quote that you include at the end of your book. You, you write that, I recalled how the Zen teacher Ido Roshi, thinking of the cries of abandonment of Jesus upon the cross, had delivered a teaching that must have unsettled many of his students. It's really this line that I want to ask you about. The, the quote from Ido Roshi, the Zen teacher, is that the struggle of your life, he'd said, is your paradise. Oh, that's tough words, I think, Pico. Tell me how you interpret that. It's a very shocking um, sentence, and it's a harsh conclusion for the book. But, you know, I think the good times take care of themselves. I, as a traveler, know that it's not so difficult to find fun and wonder and beauty in the world. It's really the tough times in life, as with the pandemic, that ask difficult questions of us and force us to rise above ourselves. And that notion that it can be in the very struggle that you find your paradise is to me almost more encouraging and inspiring than to say you can find it on, on a sandy beach. You know, in, in Japan, when I first went there, I heard, I think it's a Buddhist notion, that life is about joyful participation in a world of sorrows, that sorrows are non-negotiable. Unfortunately, they come to all of us, but that doesn't preclude the possibility of joy and wonder and hope. And the older I've got, and the more I see that even when life is going smoothly, it's full of surprises. Your house suddenly burns down and a pandemic closes down the world and a loved one dies. And then happy surprises too. Um, I've come to think that I, I want and I have to find my paradise in the middle of my daily life, which is also reassuring because I don't have to travel across the world <laughs> to find right, it. Right. Um, I just have to open my eyes to reality and to see life as it really is. That's writer Pico Iyer. His latest book is The Half-Known Life in Search of Paradise. The excerpts you heard are courtesy of Riverhead Books. You can see all of Pico's talks at TED.com. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Stay with us. 
This episode's sponsor is PwC, which offers the following message. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. PwC pairs the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud. Fuel innovation with responsible AI. And detect risks before they become headlines. Human-led and tech-powered, it's all part of the new equation from PwC. This message comes from NPR sponsor Planet Oat. While some podcast topics can be complex and pretty heady, Planet Oat oat milk is an uncomplicated no-brainer. It's rich, creamy, and an excellent source of calcium with vitamins A and D. Also, Planet Oat's unsweetened varieties have zero grams of sugar. It's great in coffee, cereal, smoothies, you name it. So next time you're at the grocery store, save the overthinking for the podcast and reach for the one that has it all. Planet Oat Oat Milk or visit planetoat.com for more. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. We Were the Lucky Ones is the true story of one Jewish family's struggle to survive and reunite after being separated at the start of World War II. The series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including Outstanding Limited Series and Outstanding Lead Actress and Actor in a Limited Series for Joey King and Logan Lerman. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Squarespace. Kickstart or update written content on any website, product description, or email with Squarespace AI, generating instant, personalized results that know and show your brand identity. Explain what your site is about, choose your tone, and enter what you need to get short or long-form text. No matter the placement, Squarespace AI makes it easier to go live, stand out, and succeed online. Use code RADIOHOUR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hey, before we get back to the show, want to let you know that our next bonus episode for TED Radio Hour Plus is coming out really soon. If you've ever wondered what exactly a circular economy is or how it can work in reality, well, I spoke to Gary Cooper, whose company is all about eliminating waste, but particularly in offices, big corporations, what they can do with all those chairs and desks. That extended conversation is coming Wednesday. If you're not a TED Radio Hour Plus supporter yet, join your fellow listeners to get all kinds of bonus content and all our episodes sponsor-free. Just go to plus.npr.org slash TED or give it a try right in the Apple Podcasts app. And thanks. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Anoush Zamarodi. And on today's show, paradise lost and found, and a new vision of what paradise can be on our rapidly changing planet. Yes, this is what we need to do all over the world in order to face climate change. This is paradise, and we have to recognize it. This is Ramon mendez Galine, and he's referring to his home country, Uruguay. Three and a half million people live in this small country on the east coast of South America, But Uruguay has done something extraordinary. It's become a kind of renewables paradise. 98% of its electric grid runs on wind, solar, and water. It has so much renewable energy that it exports some to its neighbors, Argentina and Brazil. And the country managed to transform itself in just five years. How? Well, like many stories, this one begins with a crisis. About 15 years ago, Uruguay was in financial trouble. 
and Ramon was a self-described simple university physics professor. Our economy was growing too fast, and the demand was growing very fast. Here's Ramon Mendez-Galain on the TED stage. Fifteen years ago, the Uruguayan energy sector was going to a deep crisis. The economy was growing at unprecedented rates, and poverty was decreasing. It was so great, of course, but at the same time, energy demand was growing rapidly, which was not so great. Uruguay has no proven reserve of fossil fuels. We have already used our large rivers to start hydropower plants. And our two main neighbors were having their own difficulties to supply internal demand, so it was not easy for them to help us. In dry years, when you have to import much more fossil fuels or we're forced to import electricity from our neighbors at extraordinary prices, cost overruns could be as high as $1 billion. And for a small economy like Uruguay, this is 2% of its GDP. And we're still we're beginning to have blackouts. We're living the perfect storm. But crisis is also opportunity. Can we go back to 15 years ago? The reality at the time was energy costs were soaring. Yep. There were blackouts. And you didn't see a way forward for the country. Yeah. And what was your idea to change it to? Take me through what, what you thought needed to change. So I dramatically changed my, my work and I began to be involved in the energy issue. This is what I did. After writing my thoughts and then the paper, and ended up with a comprehensive proposal for what my country could do in order to be aware of these difficulties. And the surprise was that these proposals had reached my president of my country. And one day, me as a simple university professor, I received a phone call inviting me to be the political responsible of our energy agency. And, uh, well, I did something crazy. I accepted. <laughs> <laughs> that is a little crazy. You get a call from the president and you became the country's national director of energy. And you made a plan to shift Uruguay from fossil fuels to renewables. But how did you explain it to people? Absolutely. So renewables are the best option, not only for the global climate issue, but also at the national level, because it reduces costs, it stabilizes costs, it has the most sovereignty for your country, it creates a lot of jobs. So it's overall the best solution. So what, what I try to do is just to fix a new narrative, national narrative. This is crucial. This is not just to fight against climate change. This is because it's the best solution. The most difficult point was not to convince that this was the best, but to make it work. <laughs> this was a more difficult point. And you know what? Many, many colleagues from the governments at that time, they were still saying, to be honest, Ramon, we never believed what we were saying. We, we let you go because you didn't have any other option. So, okay, <laughs> why not? Let's try it. Why not? But I knew that it was possible. Do you remember the first time you went to visit a solar field and saw it for yourself, actually collecting energy? Oh, yes, of course. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. The very first one was a very small solar farm of only two hectares. This means it was only about one megawatt, almost nothing. It's very close to the 
largest hydropower plant in the country. And it has a very beautiful park surrounding the dams. And I thought it was a very symbolic thing to have because hydropower is the, the best of our country and the future is solar. In just five years, we went to an almost completely decarbonized one that already in 2017 was 98% renewable. What makes the Uruguayan case unique is that almost half of that electricity is obtained from non-traditional renewable sources, wind, solar, and sustainable biomass. Wind alone can produce up to 40% of the total electricity consuming the country in a year, a percentage comparable to the other world wind champion, Denmark, but also 15 or even 20% of our electricity is obtained with sustainable biomass. Of course, none of this was easy. We have to innovate. We have to understand that uh, such a power system requires the planning and an operation quite different than the traditional one. Our academics worked for years to design a groundbreaking software to handle energy dispatch specifically designed to manage intermittent sources, such as wind and solar, but also how to use water. This allows us, for example, to have a prediction of the amount of wind electricity and solar electricity that we're going to have in the grid with a week in advance. And this also allows us to know how and when we have to use water from the dams. You are not in government anymore, but you have kind of taken your message and what you've learned on the road. You're on the international stage talking to all kinds of people, and they must ask you, what do you wish you knew? What do we need to know if we want to take some of the lessons from Uruguay and apply them to our own countries? What do you tell them? Well, the message is very simple. The message is... First, there is a solution right now which is the best solution at our national level. There is a solution which creates jobs, which reduces costs, which makes you independent of fluctuation of the prices of energy commodities. And the second message is, it works. All our power systems had been designed having in mind fossil power plants. And and this is not a problem. I mean, this is just history. This is what Uh we have developed all all over the world. So if we want to run a system which is driven by renewable sources, but intermittent sources, planning is absolutely crucial. Public policies are crucial. But we prove in Uruguay that it's the best solution and it works. That's it. Nothing more than that. So what does the future look like for you? It's not just having renewable electricity. It's much more than that. It's to ask ourselves every day, why am I buying something? Why am I consuming something? And what makes me happy? And uh, I'm very happy of living in, in this country and not consuming fossil fuels or impacting the climate. But this is not enough. This is just one part of our road. And we should focus much more on the way we consume and the way we transport ourselves and once again what makes us happy in life what makes you happy ramon <laughs> what's making happy is is try to be part of a global process to live a better world for our our kids 
I, I, I'm, I'm happy every morning when I see that what we have succeeded to do in Uruguay can be replicated elsewhere and is receiving such an important recognition. Uh, it's not just wishful thinking, it's real. And so this makes me happy. That was Ramon Mendez Galine. He's the executive director of Asociación Ivy, a nonprofit working on a sustainable future. You can see Ramon's full talk at TED.com. On the show today, Paradise Lost and Found. And sometimes paradise can be the right mix of people at the time you need them most. After a near-fatal accident, Ramona Pearson wasn't sure she would ever recover. But she ended up finding a safe haven where she least expected it, a senior citizen's home. Here she is on the TED stage in 2011. When I was 22 years old, I I came home from work, put a leash on my dog, and went for my usual run. While I was preparing my dog for the run, a man was finishing drinking at a bar, picked up his car keys, got into a car, and headed south or wherever he was. I was running across the street, and... The only thing that I actually remember is feeling like a grenade went off in my head. What had happened is he ran a red light and hit me, my dog. She ended up underneath the car. I flew out in front of the car, and then he ran over my legs. I had no idea what was going on, but strangers intervened, kept my heart moving, beating. I say moving because it was quivering, and they were trying to put a beat back into it. Somebody was smart and put a big pen in my neck to open up my airway so that I could get some air in there. And somehow I ended up at the hospital. I was wrapped in ice and then eventually put into a drug-induced coma. Eighteen months later, I I woke up. I was blind, I couldn't speak, and I, I couldn't walk. I was 64 pounds. I had more than 50 surgeries, but who's counting? Eventually, the hospital decided it was time for me to go. They needed to open up space for somebody else they thought could, uh, could come back from whatever they were going through. Everybody lost faith in me being able to recover. So they basically put a map up on the wall, threw a dart, and it landed at a senior home here in Colorado. And I know all of you are scratching your head, a senior citizen's home, what in the world are you going to do there? But if you think about all of the skills and talent that are in this room right now, that's what a senior home has. The one advantage that they had over most of you is wisdom, because they had a long life. And I needed that wisdom at that moment in my life. But imagine what it was like for them when I showed up at their doorstep. At that point, I had gained four pounds, so it was 68 pounds. I was bald, wearing hospital scrubs, and I had a white cane in one hand and and a suitcase full of medical records in another hand, and the senior citizens realized that they needed to have an emergency meeting. So they pulled back, and they were looking at each other, and they were going, okay, what skills do we have in this room? This kid needs a lot of work. They eventually started matching their talents and skills to all of my needs. But one of the first things they needed to do was assess what I needed right away, which I needed to figure out how to eat like a normal human being since I'd been eating through a a tube in my chest and then through my veins and 
And then they had to figure out, well, she needs furniture. So they went to their storage lockers and all gathered their extra furniture, gave me pots and pans, blankets, everything. The next thing that I needed was a makeover. So out went the green scrubs and in came the polyester and floral prints. <laughs> We're not going to talk about the hairstyles that they tried to force on me once my hair grew back. But I did say no to the blue hair. <laughs> so eventually they decided that, well, I need to learn to speak. And I had to learn how to coordinate my new throat with my tongue and my new teeth and my lips. And I was an adult and it was embarrassing. So I acted like a two-year-old and refused to, to work. But the men, they were going to make it fun for me. So they were teaching me cuss word scrapple at night. <laughs> and then secretly, how to swear like a sailor. <laughs> so I'm going to just leave it to your imagination <laughs> as to what my first words were. And a former teacher who happened to have Alzheimer's took on the task of teaching me to write. The redundancy was actually good for me. So we'll just keep moving on. <laughs> One of the pivotal times for me was actually learning to cross the street again as a blind person. So there were two obstacles I had to get through. One was post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, every time I approached the, the curb, I would panic. And the second one was, was actually trying to figure out how to cross that street. So one of the seniors just came up to me and she pushed me up to the corner and she said, when you think it's time to go, just stick the cane out there. If it's hit, don't cross the street. <laughs> Made perfect sense. But by the third cane that went whizzing across the road, they realized that they needed to put their resources together and they raised funds so that I could gain the skills to be a, a blind person and also to go get a guide dog who transformed my life. And I was able to return to college because of the senior citizens who invested in me and also the guide dog and the skills that I had gained. Ten years later, I gained my sight back, not magically, and I opted in for three surgeries, and one of them was experimental. The biggest change for me was looking down at my hands and seeing that I'd lost ten years of my life. I thought that time had stood still for some reason and moved on for family and friends, but when I looked down, I realized that time marched on for me too. We didn't have words like crowdsourcing and radical collaboration when I had my accident, but, but the concept held true. People working with people to rebuild me, people working with people to re-educate me. I wouldn't be standing here today if it wasn't for extreme radical collaboration. Thank you so much. That was Ramona Pearson. She's the founder of several tech startups, and you can see her full talk at TED.com. Thanks so much for listening to our show, Paradise Lost and Found. Before we go, I want to make a very quick request. We want to understand what you're enjoying about the show and what you think could be improved. Please help us serve you better 
by taking a brief but really important survey at npr.org slash TED survey. That's npr.org slash TED survey. It means a lot, so thank you. This episode was produced by James Delahousie, Matthew Cloutier, Andrea Gutierrez, and Harsha Nahada. It was edited by Sanaz Meshkinpour and me. Our production staff at NPR also includes Rachel Faulkner-White, Fiona Guerin, and Katie Monteleone. Irene Noguchi is our executive producer. Our audio engineers were Gilly Moon, Robert Rodriguez, Neil Tevolt, and Margaret Luthar. Our theme music was written by Ramtin Arablouei. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Michelle Quint, Alejandra Salazar, and Daniela Bellarezzo. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and you've been listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, VCU Massey Comprehensive Cancer Center, who, as an NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center in the country's top 4%, is unconditionally committed to keeping loved ones in their lives. MasseyCancerCenter.org slash comprehensive. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. In any great story, there's a moment that sparks your curiosity. It tells you there is more to uncover. How, how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism. Immersive and intimate stories. I was... Stone Cold Speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.